All right. Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and find our seats. We're very glad that you're with us this morning. We uh, printed out less worship folders today, and by we I mean I, because we knew so many people that were going to be gone, but there are so many people here that we ran out of worship folders. So, um, they are not extensive, but if you missed worship folder notes because you didn't get one when you came in, um, I believe, Tim, do we have some in the back? Extra notes? Can you raise your hand if you didn't get sermon notes, if you want them? Anybody? Anybody anywhere? Lots of people getting ready for a nap. Jason wants one. Okay. There you go. Right there. Anybody else? All right. Well, we are very glad that you're with us. If you are visiting with us today in the seat backs, there is there are blue cards if you would like to fill one of those out for us so we can get to know you and drop it in the offering in the back. Um, or if you have a prayer request on the back of those blue forms, there are prayer requests, those go directly to the elders and we pray for those needs. Well, we, you thought we were done with Psalms last week and so did I, but things changed midweek. So we are going to do one more week in the Psalms. I know many of you are very uh, glad for that because you've enjoyed this series um, and so today we're going to continue talking about the Psalms. And as I look at my notes, I realize I still have one more announcement that I still need to make. <laughs> um, you may have checked your email this week or seen on our church Facebook group an announcement about a movie that we're hosting called Ends of the Earth from Mission, Mission, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. Um, yesterday morning I got an email that we aren't allowed to host on the day that we were hosting because it's actually in movie theaters and we'd be taking away revenue from movie theaters. So we're going to have to move that date. But now that I'm talking about it, um, I would like to mention that this is a, a great opportunity from a, a documentary from a mission organization that we support. We specifically support Ian Rojas as a mechanic pilot in Indonesia. And this is a great story of the, I think, 75 years of MAF, starting with Betty Green. Um, who was a pilot and um, began to reach people in uh, unreachable areas with her love for flying planes. And so we will let you know when that movie is going to show. Um, it will be a ticketed event. That's the way it works. So we will be selling the tickets online and we will be showing the movie. We were going to show it in the gym. We'll try to show it in here. Um, but that's coming. Okay? If you didn't see that or you haven't heard about that, now you know. Congratulations. <laughs> we will get back to you as soon as we can. Turn to the, the middle of your Bible and go to the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Old Testament, songbook, the songbook of the early church, and as we sang this morning, our songbook as well, some 3,000 years later. We're going to be in the range of Psalms 52 through 63. So today's going to be a little bit different because as I thought about what to cover um, today. I think I wanted to talk about my favorite um, Bible character who is not a member of the Trinity, and that is David. Um, ever since I was very little, I have loved the story of David and Goliath. Um, when I was able to go to Israel and visit the location of the battle, it just reinforced that even more. Um, and I love studying David. I've taught through the life of David twice. Um, I love reading books on David. I love studying David, and I got to do some more the last few days, so I'm excited today. But it's going to be, I mean, like strap in. Like get your, if you haven't stretched out your fingers today, it might be time to do that because we're going to be going back and forth a lot of places. If you are looking on an app, it might be a little more difficult today. 
um, unless you're really proficient. Some of you guys are really proficient on the app, but we're going to be moving back and forth in the scriptures. Okay, so um, today we just want to take a, a glimpse, a, a flyover of um, David's life and several of the psalms that he wrote, and specifically I want to zero in on the psalms, some of the psalms, that in that little superscription, that little heading to the psalm, actually gives you an historical event, right? Many, many of the psalms just say, of David, of David, of David. Um, And these psalms will give at least a little bit more of historical context. Some of them are very clear, and we can go back to First and Second Samuel or First Chronicles, we know exactly where their stories are. And the reason I want to do that is because David is um, the central character of the Old Testament, and the central character of the New Testament is known. One of his names is the son of David. In fact, if you go to a Bible software and you keep the pronouns out, but you just look at the words David and Jesus and search. There will be more hits in the Bible for the word David than there are for the word Jesus. Um, Jesus has four Gospels dedicated to his story. And yet the word David appears in the Bible more times than the word Jesus. And that really speaks to how important um, it is. I think I included this in uh, your notes, but there is a quote that says, "Um, David's life is the most extensively narrated that we have in our scriptures. We know more about David than anyone else in our biblical records. We know about his growing up and dying, his friends and enemies, his sins and salvation, his triumphs and defeats. Nothing is held back or suppressed. That's a little bit of an overstatement. But the entire range of the human condition is laid out for us in the narration of David's life. And that's what I find so fascinating about David and so helpful for us this morning. Because as we read his Psalms, we know more about his life situation that inspired those Psalms than we do for any other portion of the scripture. So as we dive in, David's life serves as a kind of template for us in seeking God before, during, and after triumph, tragedy, confusion, suffering, and success. David's life is a template that we can follow. And and none of us are kings, the last I checked. Um, Possibly descendants of royalty, But as Paul told the Corinthians, not many of you dot, 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 okay? We can't, we can't really connect with that part of David's life, but we can connect with the sin and the suffering and the consequences, and especially the early part of his life, um, the, the confusion, the chaos, the things that spun out of control. And so as we look at the Old Testament, I do want to give a brief background to David, the character. We, we know David probably primarily for his fight against Goliath. Um, Perhaps next would be um, his adultery with Bathsheba. And we're going to not talk about that psalm today because Patrick Levy did a great job a couple months ago talking about Psalm 51. But David, again, as we know so much about his life, um, I do want to make sure that we understand who he is. So if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and I won't make you flip there today, but one of the first promises made to Abram and his wife Sarai, who were to become Abraham and Sarah, was that not only would they have descendants, and not only would they be a blessing to the nation, but very specifically, the promise to Abram and Sarai was kings. Kings will come from you. And, and so that's just not any ordinary prophecy, right? I mean, there's lots of places in the Bible where children are promised. 
um, children are promised to come. But then also to add to that, kings will come in your line is not very common. And so in Genesis 17, kings are promised. Uh, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah's grandson, Jacob, is also promised that kings would come from him. As you go to the end of the book of Genesis, as Jacob is dying in Egypt with Joseph and all his sons around him, he gives prophecies for all of his 12 sons. And very importantly, a king or a ruler was promised to come from the line of Judah. So as we go through the Bible story, we get more and more and more specific as things are narrowed down of what to look for. So that that Judah is proclaimed to be the tribe one day that the king would come from. And as we, as we move through uh, the wilderness wanderings, and then the children of Israel come into the promised land, uh, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, they take the land of Canaan, and then we get to the book of Judges, which, you know, if you're just looking for a, an upper today, uh, just, you know, turn off football and just go for Judges. It'll real jazz you up, okay? So, um, Judges is a brutal book, um, but it ends with this interesting emphasis on the city, little town of Bethlehem. And as the book of Judges ends and goes into the book of Ruth, Ruth begins in a little town of Bethlehem. And it's, it's interesting that that happens. In fact, that where we meet David in the Bible, in, in, the, in the English Bible, the order of our Bible, we actually meet David in the end of Ruth. The end of Ruth has a genealogy that speaks about David. David's so central to the story that he's in it before he's in it. <laughs> okay? David is introduced to us in 1 Samuel chapter 16 after we hear about Samuel himself, the last of the judges, and then Saul, the first king. Things do not go well with Saul. The people wanted a king. It was not a a problem necessarily. God had given them provisions in the wilderness before they even entered the land. Deuteronomy uh, 18 uh, maps out what they were to do. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 17 maps out what the king was going to be. There was going to be a king. They knew that was coming, but they went about it all wrong with Saul. And you'd think if they had looked at their scriptures, they'd realize, wait, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Somebody made a mistake here. But of course, that's the whole point. Saul becomes king. He leads Israel into more prosperity, but very quickly becomes a failed king. Saul's son Jonathan even loves this, uh, this young man David so much that he pledges his fealty to him. The crown prince pledges his fealty to a shepherd boy. Um, and that is where we get to the famous story of David and Goliath. And from there, of course, David ascends to the heights. He conquers the giant that no one else will fight. He uh, is made a quick celebrity on the top 40 radio by the songs that say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And that song went viral, and he was propelled to greatness. Saul, of course, did not like that, but David, everything he touched at that point in his life was successful. He won. He was successful in battle. And we find out that David is, is not just a warrior. So depending on how you come into the story of David, I was introduced to David as a young boy, this incredible story and 
knocking out the giant with a sling and a stone. It's an amazing story. And any little boy who has uh, anyone in their life who's bigger than them, it's very easy to, to, to replay that over and over and over and over and over and over and over because David killed Goliath. Ah! And I am not a musician. Um, I don't play one on TV. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I'm, I just don't know musical. I play the iPhone. That's my preferred instrument of choice. But you know what? That means I missed the whole part about David when I was a kid, being an accomplished singer-songwriter, a musician. In fact, he's so talented that they initially bring him in to play the, the lyre or the harp, a stringed instrument, proto-guitar, whatever he, he's playing. And that is, he's so good at it that it calms down the demon-ravaged Saul. Imagine that you were good enough at a musical instrument to calm down a demon-ravaged man. Incredible. So David's what we call a polymath. He's good at everything. He's good at everything that he does. And we know this because we have so much of his story. In fact, one, one scholar said that the book of Samuel, which contains the story of David, said this, It is one of the most astounding pieces of narrative that has come down to us from the entire ancient world. The story of David is probably the greatest single narrative representation in antiquity of a human life. The way it is presented is different than the stories of Hercules. Those are myth and they're written as myth. But the stories of David are written as if they're real. And they're connected to real places in real time. And so as we read the story of David, which by the way, read the story of David. Get into your Bible and start reading. You have um, half of 1 Samuel is mostly about David. All of 2 Samuel is about David. And he's so popular, he even spills over. He won't die until 1 Kings. David's also um, in 1 Chronicles, which tells the story from a little bit different point of view and actually um, emphasizes David's musicianship. Um, David sets up the musicians. He sets up the choirs. He gets them on a rotation. He makes sure that they're recruiting the best and the brightest from Israel to play for God's glory. And that means that as we study the life of David and as we read the Psalms, or how many of you have read a chronological Bible? Anybody read a chronological Bible that re, oh, look at that. Yeah, it reorders. Um, I mean, large chunks of scripture stay in their order. But the cool thing about the Psalms and about the life of David is if in the chronological Bible that I read, interspersed the Psalms into the life of David as you were reading. Um, so if you've never read, that's a, and it's a really cool way to read the Bible as it rearranges a little bit. Um, it, it sprinkles in the prophets during the times of the kingdom and all those things. But as we get to the Psalms, we begin to see about 13 or 14, depending on how you're counting, Psalms that have headings that connect their writing, their content, and not to us, but to the original recipients, the music, the songs themselves that they actually sang of David. So, for example, look at Psalm 52, which is where we're going to start today in our flyover. Now, there's psalms before this. I, I took the cluster of psalms that are right here in book two of the psalms. But Psalms 3, 7, 18, some lists have Psalm 30, Psalm 34, and Psalm 51. Um, are part of this. And we're taking the cluster of Psalm 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, 60, and 63. And I wanted to include 142, but we just, we can't do it. 
So we're going to do a little flyover, and I want us to, to take a peek at the things that are going on in David's life. David, the younger brother. David, the shepherd. David, the singer-songwriter. David, the warrior. David, the loyal subject. David, the refugee. David, the fugitive. David, the king. David, the husband. David, the father. David, the adulterer. David, the murderer. David, the aged statesman. All these are from the life of David. Look at Psalm 52. Now, in your Bibles, a lot of you have um, titles, headings for basically every chapter in your Bible. I'd like to remind us that when we're in, in the Psalms, those instructions at the beginning of the Psalms that say of David or talk about a musical instrument or they have a weird Hebrew word that we don't know what it is, um, or that in this case has actual historical context, that's actually Scripture. Okay, that's been passed down for thousands of years. So in Psalm 52, it says, To the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. That's all scripture. Before you even begin to read verse 1, that is in some, in some uh, commentaries and Bibles, that's verse 0. Okay, there. But this is actually, if you have a study Bible or if you have cross-references in your Bible, and it might be a really tiny font and you might be in the middle or it might be at the bottom, you should have a reference from Psalm 52 to the story in 1 Samuel 22, probably verses 9 and 10. If you don't, I don't have cross-references in this Bible. I have it written down right next to it so that anytime I read Psalm 52, I'm reminded, oh, this is from 1 Samuel 22. So, look at a little bit of Psalm 52. We have the context, Doeg the Edomite. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. This is a song written at someone. <laughs> At someone. This is um, almost like a revenge song, okay? This is a very interesting way to start the psalm. But if you keep your finger there and you go to 1 Samuel, and by the way, you should probably just keep fingers and thumbs and ribbons and bookmarks as we go. We're going back to 1 Samuel 22 real quick to take a peek at the context. Why? Because this song, this scripture, these Bible verses come out of historical context, which means... That if we can relate to or find analogies from the life of David to our own lives, then these psalms could have a very, very helpful, immediate effect and impact on our lives. Right? There's parts of the Bible, there's parts of, um, there's chapters in the psalms, there's parts of the New Testament, the Old Testament, that speak to you at different times in your life. Okay? There are times in your life where Ephesians 6.1 is just like the go-to theme verse of the whole house. Okay, there's times where there's some proverbs that are really speaking to you about finances, right? There's, there are different scriptures that speak to you at times. We can connect with David's life here in 1 Samuel 22 and see exactly what he was talking about when he wrote this psalm. So, 1 Samuel 22, at the beginning, David is already on the run from King Saul who wants to kill him and he's, he's hiding in caves and he's staying away. He even evacuates his mom and dad, out of the country so that Saul can't use them uh, as leverage. Now, when we get um, to verses, um, verses 
well, starting at verse 6, really. Okay, we'll see what's happening here. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And so, this is the outdoor throne room. Okay, must be a good time of year. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that doesn't even deign to give his name, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? It's like a bribe that turns into an accusation. It's a really weird thing going on, but remember Saul is, is being oppressed by a demon. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that... Okay, you get the the picture here? All right. So Doeg, the Edomite in verse 9, stands up and he says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. That's Doeg's cameo. Just pops in there, boo, hiss, if this is a melodrama, okay? That's what Doeg does. That's what he does to merit a psalm written at him, <laughs> okay? I, I think that there's probably some of you that this is work, <laughs> okay? This is work, right? People telling on you, uh, people talking behind people. Some of you are nodding and chuckling, okay? Yeah, you see that that quick application that we can make there? Doeg is is basically selling out David here. Okay, remember, David is Saul's son-in-law and technically still on the payroll, right? So this is a co-worker. So when, when David writes in Psalm 52, he's writing out of personal betrayal and woundedness. Have you been personally betrayed or wounded by family or close friends? you haven't i bet you will this psalm is for you the first four verses are anger accusations directed at doeg but verse five but god some of the best verses in the bible start with that but god and what david does here is in his boldness to speak out to the lord he displays trust thankfulness And patience. Look at verses 8 and 9. David's speaking of himself. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name. For it is good in the presence of the godly. David is likely on the run. He is likely sleeping in caves, under trees, out in the open, with, a hundred, with hundreds of men um, on a road trip that none of them chose, but they are on the run. This is what David speaks from that situation. Homeless, harried, hurried. He is out in the wilderness, and yet he says, I trust, I will thank you, I will wait. David shows the patience that trust in the Lord can bring and in the midst of trials gives thanks. Go to Psalm 54. Psalm 54 says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? 
Well, this one's easy. This is either 1 Samuel 23, 19 or 1 Samuel 26, 1. The Ziphites twice sell out David. Ziph, by the way, is in the, the tribal allotment of Judah. These are Judahites. These are his clan. These are his tribe selling him out to a Benjaminite, King Saul. In Psalm 54, he's been betrayed. His hiding place has been revealed, and he knows that a man who wants to kill him is coming after him with the special forces. And so it sounds like this. Oh, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. David is in danger. He's desperate. He shows humility, possibly because of humiliation. But notice what happens. Verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. Now the scales tip in his favor. Right? They're sending, they're coming after him, special forces, the best of the best. They're coming after David to kill him. And David says, this, God, hear me, help me. And then he acknowledges, God's on my side. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. And your faithfulness, put an end to them. And then verses 6 and 7 speak of thankfulness. They speak of deliverance. They speak of that in the future tense and the past tense. They speak of free will offerings. Now, David can't offer offerings while he's on the run. So this is a promise that David has made. When I can get back to the tabernacle, when I can get back to God's presence among the Israelites, I'm going to offer sacrifices and thanksgiving. Now, depending on when this is in David's life, our, our best guess from the text is that David is probably on the run from Saul for a solid decade. Okay? So this is bow and arrow, swords, spears, Find a goat, find a deer, kill a lion, survive in the wilderness. Find a spring, find a place for water. And yet in the midst of that, he's able to, to offer worship and thankfulness. In your desperation and your humiliation, can you give thanks? David found the strength in trusting the Lord to do just that. Look at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths. It's a good album name. A miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Well, when did the Philistines seize him in Gath? This one's a little harder to pin down, but it's probably 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. If you want to go there, that would be helpful. 1 Samuel 21 is the historical context for this next psalm, which is probably a little bit more well-known to many of us. Several songs that I learned growing up came out of Psalm 56. But in 1 Samuel 21, this proceeds Doeg, the Edomite, and what he has done. David is desperate. He gets Goliath's sword. He gets some bread, and he's on the run. And so verse 10 of chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. This is ironic, because as you read the story, he just went and got Goliath's sword. Hey, hum, where was Goliath from? Oh, Gath! So where should we run when we're in trouble? 
not Gath. (laughs) David is desperate to run to Gath. He goes and he comes. And the servants of Achish say, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Like they heard the radio? Like they heard the songs? They knew about the best-selling album about David? In verse 12, And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle, it's a great word, spittle, run down his beard. And this is one of the funniest scenes in the scriptures, okay? Then Akish said to his servants, back in the throne room, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He's like, I already got enough crazy people here. Why is this crazy guy here? Like he's literally, okay, he's, he's, he's showing himself to have gone insane in his running for his life from Saul. You don't do that. You don't put on this act unless there is very real danger. Are you getting the the theme here of David's life? Now, I want you to notice in Psalm 56 how honest David is in his declarations. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I dribble spit down my beard. Externally. What about internally? I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. Look at that, verse 3. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. Isn't that great? When, I, when I'm afraid, I won't be afraid. That's a really good one to have on repeat in your head. When I am afraid, I will not be afraid. Why? In God I trust. What can flesh do to me? Well, David, um, I can think of lots of things that flesh could do to you. Torture? Murder? I mean, Samson was a few chapters before this. His eyes got put out. That sounds awful. What can flesh do to me? Paul echoes this in the book of Romans. There's all these things that are going on in his life. It's horrible. Verse 8. What's God doing as he watches David struggle? God is so intimately involved in David's life, he is not sitting in heaven far away, binoculars watching this. What's he doing? He's putting David's tears in a bottle. How would you do that? Obviously, it's a metaphor. But the metaphor means something. How would you gather somebody's tears in a bottle? Harry Potter fans? Got any help? You got to get real close, right? I mean, you got to get that vial right there, real, real close to some tears, right? How do you gather tears in a bottle? It speaks of intimacy and closeness, that God would get so close in his comforting of David that he would gather up his tears. And not only that, after he gathers the tears... He gets his journal out and writes it in his book. God is keeping track. God is keeping track of your sufferings. He is keeping track of them. And if things never get better in this life, if God's keeping them in his book, do you know what the end of Revelation says is going to happen in the end of time? Books will be opened. 
and everything that is wrong will be made right. God is keeping track in his book. Look at the end of verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in Yahweh whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then verses 12 and 13 speak of sacrifices. Again, he's on the run. He cannot perform. He can't go to church. He goes to church, he dies. So he says, when I get back, obviously it's not church, okay? But when, when I get back, I am going to offer offerings to you. And this is not just, I'm going to show up and go, thank you, Lord. Okay, that got recorded. He's going to show up with an animal. He's going to slit its throat. He's going to empty the blood out. And he's going to put the animal on the fire to burn it up so that he can praise God in the way that God has prescribed praise. Aren't you thankful? <laughs> We're in the new covenant. You'd have to come this morning with a goat. That's a good thing. But, but, but David is going to give praise in a costly way. When you're suffering, God is bottling up your tears. He's keeping track of what's happening to you. The next psalm, Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, when you're in a cave, you're in a tough spot. And there are several places in the Old Testament where David is in a cave. So 1 Samuel 22 1 Samuel 24 are two of those spots this is likely referring to. There are caves all over the southern portion of Israel. They're still, you're able to explore them today. Um, You can crawl through them and get a feel for what it must have been like to hide from Saul's men in a cave. When you're in a cave, it better be a tunnel system or you're boxed in. And what else is, do we know about caves? They're dark. Really, really dark. And if you're wanting to hide, that's a good thing. But long term, do we do well in the dark as humans? So, David says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The trust that David has in God. I can hide in you while the hurricane goes and passes by and I'll be safe. I'll be safe in you. Look at verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. What is the reaction? Verse 5 is not my reaction to that. (laughs) Verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I'm still in help mode. Not really praise mode, but but David shows us here that in the midst of danger, praise is a fantastic antidote to fear. Look what he says in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. How many of you, this is what you do, to battle depression, Satan, tiredness, right? This is what you do. You sing. Songs come to mind. Maybe they're script, straight up scripture. Or maybe there's a song we sang last Sunday. David does it too. I will sing and make med- uh, melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. 
I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Probably not in the cave. Let's hide, guys. Let's hide. <laughs> that's, that's not good. What's he saying? He, again, he's saying, when I get the chance, I'm going to belt one out. I'm just going to sing it. But I can't right now. There's a promise, which is implicit trust that he's going to get out of it because the Lord will rescue him. Another parallel to this is Psalm 142, if you want to look at that later. Psalm 57 happens in a cave. Psalm 142 happens in a cave. By the way, did, was, was David writing on his tablet? And I do mean tablet. Like, was he writing on a tablet in the cave? I, I don't see a lot of like top-notch songwriters in here. I'm sure we have a few. I'm not one, <laughs> right? Um, writing songs in the midst of, yeah, you're like, what, what do you do? Is this, is, I don't know, what, what is this? Is this, is this the bathroom at work? In your bathroom break, you're cranking out a song, like, in the, in the bathroom real quick? To, do you find a corner to write a song? What's happening? David reflects later on what just happened and writes the song, right? He's not, he's not writing it necessarily. He might have jotted down a few notes, but the song is coming together because David thinks in melodies and harmonies. He thinks as a musician while he's on the run with a sword and a spear in his hand. And so these songs come together and he puts the finishing, finishing touches afterwards. Go to Psalm 59, two psalms later. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, apparently it was, a, it was a very famous tune, a miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. This is 1 Samuel 19. We don't have time to go there. But in 1 Samuel 19, there are literally men watching for when David gets home so they can snuff out his life. His wife kind of helps him with a ruse and they... Um, disguise that, like, oh, David's sleeping. Don't, don't bother him. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, it's not David. He's not here. Nah, nah, nah. Right. So David gets away. He runs away, but barely by the skin of his teeth. And he writes Psalm 59, which is a really long psalm. But you'll notice in this one again the honest conversation from David to the Lord. Listen, we've said this throughout the Psalms. The Lord can handle, He can handle your feelings. He made you to feel. It doesn't mean you get to feel whatever you want, whenever you want. But when you feel, God can handle it. Go to him. You pour out your complaint to him. You tell the Lord what's going on and how you feel. And he can handle it. This one again, look at verse 16 of Psalm 59. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength. It's his nickname for God. I will sing praises to you for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Psalm 60. Two more. Psalm 60 has a really long one. It's probably Second Samuel 8, but this is after David has become king. So this is one of the only ones that speaks to a later time in David's life, but he still is having trouble. There is danger all around. And this one is honest admission, verses 1 through 3. God, you've rejected us. You've been angry. Please restore us. The honest admission that they are, they are failures in some ways and that God has given them up to those sometimes. And then he makes bold requests. So David does not walk timidly into the presence of the Lord. He walks in and he speaks 
for deliverance. He asks God for salvation so that, that he might recover and fight the battles that the Lord wants him to fight. And lastly, Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Short superscription. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is during those 10 years on the run from Saul. You recognize these probably. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And some of you have been in the wilderness of Judah. And it looks similar to some barren places in Southern California where many of you have been on hikes. And there's no water. And if you forgot yours, oops, or ouch, or we're in trouble. So what does David liken his need for God to? His need for water, for life, for survival. And he sings to the Lord, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. But, verse 9, there are those who seek to destroy my life. They're coming after me. He's on the run from Saul. Perhaps he's on the run from Absalom later on in his life when he is king. Whatever the case, he's out and he is being pursued. Look at the honest evaluation of what's going on in his life. You know, when you talk to God, um, if, you, if you're able to, to speak to the Lord honestly and openly and candidly, an honest evaluation before the Lord is a great way to start because you're agreeing with him while finding out what's going on, seeking, Lord, what's happening? Why is this happening? And maybe the Lord doesn't give you the why, but you're able to, to speak it out. How many of you are verbal processors? You ha- it has to come out, okay? Yes, all right? Do that with the Lord. He has an honest evaluation, and he also aligns his perspective and his priorities with the Lord. You know what's more important than living is God's steadfast love. You know what's more important than life? It's praising God while you have life. Hopefully, as we've gone through some of these psalms, you've seen that there are some really amazing things to read in the life of David, and perhaps this will spur some of you on to study the life of David. But as we transition to a time of communion, we come to the Lord desperate for his presence, desperate for himself. And the Lord in his kindness has not only given us words, but in a few cases, what we do in the baptistry and what we do here, he's given us physical, tangible reminders of who he is. The elements are, they're little. It's a little cracker. It's a little swig of juice. But what it symbolizes is massive. The broken body and the blood of the Lord. Ask the worship team to come up and the elders to come down as we transition into this. Some of you are in a wilderness place right now. You're in a dry and weary land where there is no water and you're desperate for God. You know, one of the reasons we do communion the way that we do communion is because we give time right now for us to have a little bit of that honest conversation with the Lord. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, this is a time to evaluate your own heart in light of God and who he is. 
This is both a very serious and solemn time as well as a time of rejoicing. Remember Jesus' death. And remember that Jesus' death gives us life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in a book all about community, life together, he said the more deeply we grow into the Psalms and the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich will our prayer become. So maybe you leave your Bible open and pray some of these prayers to the Lord right now and ask for deliverance and for salvation, for trust that you don't feel that you have, for the Lord to give that to you. We're going to pass out the elements now, and there will be music, and you can sing, or you can pray, or you can be silent before the Lord, but this is the opportunity that we have as believers in Christ to prayerfully follow the Lord in what he has given to us to do by taking a little cracker and a little juice and remembering that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was poured out that we might have life. So that at the end of days, when all those books are opened, that if we're in the Lamb's book of life, nothing can touch us. Father, you sent your only son because that was the only way. And Jesus, you agreed to the plan and you left your throne and entered the womb of a virgin girl in a podunk corner of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. What humility we see in your life. Lord Jesus, you could have called down legions of angels and wiped out the Roman army. And as the nails were pounded in to your hands and feet, and as your own people crowded around the cross and mocked you and made fun of you and and told you to come off the cross, you stayed on the cross. So that we might be saved. And we have a good, good message because you died, Lord Jesus, but the grave couldn't hold you. And three days later, you rose, burst out of the grave to live forever and to promise us new life. Let us go into the world, our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. Lord, this week, may we proclaim this message and then also believe it and re-believe it. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. May we be like David and cling to you and sing to you and repeat back to you the promises that you've made to us. Thank you for how you love us. Amen.